0: hundred years, a thousand years, we're marching on the road. The going isn't easy yet, we've got a heavy load. Oh, we've got a heavy load. Hello, and welcome to this episode which is on the Chartist movement as we discussed in the last episode, which was background, there were a significant number of problems with the electoral system in England in the early 1800s. It's perhaps instructive to have a little think about an example. And I'm not just talking about Peterloo, which is the crisis that sets it all off, but an actual example of an election. So if we have a look at the Yorkshire election of 1807, where you've got uh, William Wilberforce and Lascals and Milton all vying for election to Parliament in Yorkshire. And what actually happens? Well, there's threats. There's a riot which breaks out in Leeds after the mayor of Leeds beats up a little boy who shouted Milton forever. Mounted soldiers charge through the streets and they raid people's houses. Free food and beer is provided for all of the people who are eligible to vote. Voters are taken to York on farm carts from all the outlying areas. Milton spends £1,900, and think about that, that's £1,900 in 1807, purely on transporting all of the voters from one village to York and then back. He books 30 inns, 100 houses, and free accommodation for anyone who's voting for him. One single party that Lascarle is holding costs him £2,630. Lascarle pays at one pub in York for 60 gallons of free beer to be given to the voters. It is massively corrupt. It is hugely corrupt. Reliant on bribery and intimidation, the total cost of this one election is that Lascals and Milton in Yorkshire in 1807 spend £120,000 each. Wilberforce doesn't, because Wilberforce is going to win anyway, simply because of his reputation. So Wilberforce only spends £28,000. Only £28,000 thousand pounds, the amount of money involved here is absolutely staggering, and there is no way that anyone from the working class can actually match that, and that's the problem. So it is only people with independent wealth who are able to actually get themselves elected. So we have the Great Reform Act, which is passed and is not enough. Now, we discussed the terms of the Great Reform Act in the last episode, so I'm not going to go through them again. So let's talk about what people actually do. It is worth pointing out that although we're treating this and the Factory Reform Act and the Anti-Corn Law League and the Anti-Slavery Movement and the Toll Puddle Martyrs and Trades Unionism as separate issues for the purposes of studying history, they are all actually happening at the same time. So there are other factors at play here. So at the same time that the working classes are getting themselves riled up about the idea of representation, there is also the idea of workers' rights being explored through what's happening with the Toll Puddle Martyrs, and also what's going on with the Anti-Corn Law League. We'll be discussing all of those in detail in later episodes, but you have to remember that that is also bubbling away under the surface. So, in response to the Great Reform Act, you get the People's Charter. And this is simply a list of demands drawn up. Now, you've seen this before. You saw this with the provisions of Oxford. You've seen it with Magna Carta. You've seen it with the Grand Remonstrance. It is basically a list of demands. So what did these people who felt that the Great Reform Act did not go far enough, what did they want? Well, the demands of the People's Charter were very simple. Firstly... A vote for all men over the age of 21. Remember, women's voting is not really an issue here. Next, there should be a secret ballot to ensure that there is no more bribery and no more intimidation and no more simply buying votes where your landlord can tell you who to vote for. Next, electoral districts should be equal. That is, that a village and a town should only both send back an MP if they have the same level of population. Basically to ensure that every vote is worth the same as every other vote. Remember the situation we're in here, where the towns and cities which have suddenly grown up through the Industrial Revolution don't have Members of Parliament, where little villages that barely exist anymore send back two. Some of these rotten boroughs were got rid of and some new constituencies were created in the Great Reform Act, but it's still not equal. In some of these villages, one homeowner's vote is worth 20 votes of an industrial worker in the city, and that's unfair. Next, they wanted the removal of property qualifications for MPs, so someone who does not own a home is able to stand for election. That's obviously purely about ensuring that people from the working classes can get elected to Parliament and represent others. Likewise, they want MPs to be paid. Now that's key, because as we discussed in the last episode, if there is no pay for the position of Member of Parliament, then you simply cannot go and sit in Parliament for 140 days a year and not be paid for it. You can't afford to do it so it needs to be a paid position. Finally, the last thing that's in the People's Charter is the idea of annual parliaments, that every member of parliament must stand for re-election every year. You can see the common sense in this one, because under the system that you've got in the early 1800s, parliaments, Last until they're dissolved and until the ruling party decides to call for an election. So you can very happily go, stand for election, and you can ignore everything your constituents are telling you, everything the people want you to do, because you don't have to stand for election. So you make the members of parliament go back every year and stand in front of the people who elected them so they can say, well, I've done this, or I've done this, or I've done this. So how successful was this idea of the Charter? Well, it builds up a lot of popular support. In 1838, the first year of the People's Charter, there's a single meeting in Glasgow which has 150,000 people attending. It has a big impact to start with. By 1839, they're able to put together a petition to be sent to Parliament which has 1,280,000 signatures on it, all asking for these elements of the People's Charter to be introduced. Parliament rejects that petition, obviously, because the clauses in that petition are a direct attack on the interests of the landed gentry represented by the Tory party. They want no part of it. Some Whig radicals are quite happy to go along with it, but they don't have enough traction in the House of Commons and nowhere near enough members in the House of Lords. Remember, the House of Lords is almost entirely dominated by Tory landowners. There are three main waves of Chartist activity. It's worth remembering that these three main waves tend to coincide with poor economic conditions. As a general rule of thumb in history, people do not protest when their bellies are full. They only get politically active when they are hungry. So it is no surprise that those three main waves of activity, 1839, 1842, 1848, coincide with bad economic conditions. So what do they actually do? Well, they organise themselves. They get themselves together in branches. They have subscriptions. They publish newspapers. They have lists of agreed speakers who will go around and give speeches at all of these branch meetings. If this sounds a little bit familiar, it should do. Because this is basically a political party. This is the first attempt of the working classes to organise themselves into a political body. It's the first time they have a clear manifesto, a clear program of what they want and it is properly organized. Is it effective? Not really. And the problem is this. They submit a petition in 1839. The petition is rejected. So Plan B is another petition in 1848, this time with 3.3 million signatures. The petition is rejected and so they submit a third petition in 1848, this time with 5 million signatures and this petition is again rejected. The Alcoholics Anonymous definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again but expecting different results and here's the problem with the Chartists They've submitted their petition, and it's been rejected. So they submit it again, and they submit it again, and it's rejected every time. They don't have another plan. They have their meetings, they have their speeches, but they don't have an actual idea for how they're going to shift public opinion or get some traction in Parliament. It's very useful to compare and contrast the Chartists, which we're talking about here, to the Anti-Corn Law League, who we're going to talk about in a future podcast. Because the Anti-Corn Law League is very effective, because they do not stick to the same failed tactic time and time and time again. What you find is that the Chartist movement lacks central direction. The Chartist movement does not have a clear organising principle in the centre, You've got Thomas Atwood in Birmingham who's running a very moderate wing, but at the same time you've got some members of the Chartists who are out on the moors drilling with weapons, getting ready for an armed insurrection or a revolution like there was in France and like there was in America. You've also got Fergus O'Connor who comes up with a land plan that Gerard Stanley would recognise because it's very much like the diggers. We get land, we pass it out to people and they can work for themselves. There is no central direction. The historian Frank Maclean argues that the problem with Chartism was the leaders, because as he says, there were different people pursuing different agendas in different places at different times. And against that, you have the government standing strong, because they are protecting their own interests. So what does the government do? Well, they make no concessions. There is no change to electoral law. They absolutely refuse to accept the People's Charter and everything from it. And they work on a system of repression, forcing the Chartists down. The main punishment used for Chartist activities rather than imprisonment is transportation. Shackled up and sent off to Australia. And that's very effective as a means of political control, because it takes them out of the equation. They are no longer here, in this country, causing problems. So, do the Chartists fail? Yes. But. You see, the thing is, everything I said earlier that was in the People's Charter, votes for everybody over the age of 21, a secret ballot... Equal electoral districts, no property qualifications for MPs, pay for MPs, all of those are now fitted as standard to our electoral system. So the Chartists actually got what they wanted in the long term. The argument was won, but not by the Chartist organisation itself. The Chartist organisation itself basically falters and falls apart in the 1850s. Why? Why? a couple of reasons. Firstly, that lack of central authority. The fact that there is nobody directing them and nobody with a plan B. And secondly, the fact that the economy picks up massively in the Victorian era. The economy really takes off in the 1850s. All the fruits of empire come flowing in. And as we said, when people's bellies are full, they do not tend to complain. So the upturn in the economy finishes chartism off for good. However, Although Chartism as a movement fails, it is a mistake to ignore the impact of Chartism. You see, Chartism is, like I said earlier, the first example of the working classes organising themselves into a political body. And so you can trace a line from the Chartists to the growth of the Liberal Party, to the birth of the Labour Party, and to the creation of the welfare state after the Second World War. The Chartists are the inheritors of that radical tradition of Watt Tyler, of John Ball. They're the inheritors of the Peasants' Revolt, and they're the inheritors of the barons who presented their charter to King John in 1215. There are a number of historians who will argue that Chartism was the first modern political party with its subscriptions and branch meetings and all the rest. But perhaps one of the most telling things was written by Ramsden Baumforth in 1904. And he said that chartism was the means of political education of the working class. The working class is awakened by chartism. And that feeds into the other movements that we're going to talk about. That feeds into trades unionism. That feeds into the Anti-Corn Law League. That feeds into all of the other pressures which bear fruit with the fact that everything that was in the People's Charter, with the exception of the annual parliaments, comes to pass within 50 years. And once those things come to pass, then the working classes are more represented in Parliament. And that leads to a significant amount of laws being passed about the rights of ordinary working people. So, were the Chartists a failure? It's a difficult answer, because really what you're looking at is, yes, but. And the but is very, very important, because the but is about the influence of the Chartist movement. So was it a failure? Yes, but it was significant. Key takeaways you need to have about the Chartists. What was actually in the Charter? What their demands were? How they went about trying to get them? And why those tactics failed? But finally, and perhaps most importantly, what was the impact of Chartism? Why is Chartism significant? How does it move that radical cause onwards? Thank you very much for listening. Good luck in your exams. Sons of our sons are listening To hear the chart is cheers Oh, to hear the Chartist cheers